Welcome to Backlog Books. In this podcast, I will be recapping and discussing what I've been reading lately. My name is Kara. Thank you for joining me, and please be prepared for spoilers. I just want to take a brief moment here at the top to mention that I do have a YouTube channel that I started. I don't know what I'm going to do with it exactly. I have been reading chapters of a highly questionable romance from the 80s about jury duty, uh, which has been fun. I will hopefully be posting the third chapter of that soon. Life has been a little busy for me lately, so in addition to that, I think after this episode and my next episode, I'm going to take a break for a couple weeks and give myself a chance to recharge on some creative projects and things. I will make that official probably in the next episode. I haven't quite figured out how long I want the break to be or when I want to come back just yet. So that's all up in the air, but at least you have a little bit of advanced notice now. Let's get started. This time, we are talking about Kai Kei by Vaishnavi Patel. Here is the summary. I was born on the full moon under an auspicious constellation, the holiest of positions. Much good it did me. So begins Kai Kei's story. The only daughter of the kingdom of Kakai, she is raised on the tales of the gods, how they churned the vast ocean to obtain the nectar of immortality, how they vanquish evil and ensure the land of Bharat prospers, and how they offer powerful boons to the devout and the wise. Yet she watches as her father unceremoniously banishes her mother, listens as her own worth is reduced to how great a marriage alliance she can secure, and when she calls upon the gods for help, they never seem to hear. Desperate for some measure of independence, she turns to the texts she once read with her mother and discovers a magic that is hers alone. With this power, Kai Kei transforms herself from an overlooked princess into a warrior, diplomat, and most favored queen, determined to carve a better world for herself and the women around her. But as the evil from her childhood stories threatens the cosmic order, the path she has forged clashes with the destiny the gods have chosen for her family, and Kaike must decide if resistance is worth the destruction it will wreak and what legacy she intends to leave behind. Kai Kei was published in 2022. This is another Book of the Month Club book. As of this recording, it is a finalist for the New England Book Awards and has been a New York Times bestseller. Our author, Vaishnavi Patel, grew up in and around Chicago. She is a law student and somehow found time to write a novel, which I can't even begin to imagine. Kai Kei is her first novel, but she has also written and published several short stories. I have a note about the pronunciation. This book is set in India long ago. I am not especially familiar with proper Indian pronunciation. I did look it up and I said the name of the main character and this book wrong at the end of last episode, so I'm sorry about that. I figured it out for this episode, at the very least. 
And like I said, when I was doing Korean names in Phoenix Extravagant, please let me know if I butcher any of these names so that I can fix it. I am just one person making a podcast, so sometimes I make mistakes. Now, I have read a great many stories where a woman decides to become a warrior in defiance of the patriarchy, and I have loved them almost every time. Tamora Pierce's works influenced my reading preferences forever. I know this about myself. This book reminded me of those in an excellent way. I had a blast reading this book. And it's not all rah-rah, girl power, eat men's hearts in the marketplace. I'm absolutely going to talk about this more later, but I really loved our main character Kai Kei's journey from believing she must wield power the way she saw men wield power through force and armies to choosing a different path for herself. Now, this is a story inspired by the Ramayan, which is an ancient Indian epic poem. Originally written in Sanskrit, it contains over 24,000 verses split into either six or seven books, depending on the version. For context, the Odyssey was 12,000 lines. And the Ramayan isn't even the longest ancient Indian epic poem. That honor belongs to the Mahabharat, which comes in at a cool 100,000 verses. That's not relevant to this book or this story at all. I just think it's neat. <clears throat> so the Ramayan tells the story of a prince, Rama, who accomplishes mighty deeds, is beloved of the gods, and who wages a war to rescue his wife, Sita, who was stolen away by a demon lord. Now, I just summarized a 24,000-verse poem into one run-on sentence. Please understand that there's a lot more that goes on in that epic. Okay. And every time I read the source material a book is based on before I read the book, I wonder how it would have gone if I hadn't. But as always, it's too late now. Before I read this book, I found a simple illustrated version of the Ramayan to read. I wanted a basic idea of the story, and getting an illustrated version was cooler than reading the Wikipedia entry. This book follows one of the antagonists from the Ramayan. Kaikei is the queen who banishes Rama from the country for a little over a decade. I feel like in the original it's 14 years, but in this book it's 10 years. It doesn't matter. The point is he gets banished. And so this book isn't a retelling of the Ramayan as such, because that is Rama's story, and this is Kaikei's. It's about her life, her choices, her desire to improve the lives of women around her. So while I think reading the Ramayana was interesting and gave me some context, I don't think it's necessary to read that before you read this book. However, if you would like to explore the Ramayana and its history and learn some more about it, Patel mentions a few specific like essays and scholarly books that she referred to while writing this book, and I will list those for you in the show notes. Our story begins with a young Kai Kei, only daughter of the Raja of Kakai, learning that her mother has left them. At first, 
Kaike is angry. She is quick to think the worst of every person in every situation. But her nurse-slash-servant, Manthara, tells her the truth, that Kaike's father exiled her mother and accused her of treason. It makes Kaike uncomfortably aware of how fragile her place in life is, how any of the men around her can ruin her life and still be blessed by the gods. And the gods are very present in this world. They answer prayers and respond to works done in their name. But no matter how many times Kaike prays or what she does, they never answer her. They actually seem to work against her, giving her the opposite of what she asks for. She learns quickly to rely only on herself. And it is a lonely existence to be the only daughter in a big family with no mother and ignored by the gods. Kaike dreams of becoming a warrior, of wielding power the same way the men around her do. She convinces her twin brother to train her in fighting, in horse riding, in charioteering. Her country is known for its horses, and she's good at it. And more than that, she takes joy in being good at it, at having something she excels at that she's not supposed to be doing. Kaike discovers she's good at something else, too. She learns what seems to be a simple magic, a magic of the binding plane, which allows her to see her connection with other people and, if she's careful, to manipulate that connection. She sees her bonds with people as threads connecting her to them. The brighter and thicker the thread, the stronger the bond. With the binding plane and her servant Manthara to guide her, Kaike learns how important the bonds between people are and works to build them up. This magic in the binding plane introduces Kaike to another kind of power. Power not wielded through force, but through influence. Something she can use and manipulate even as a woman in a patriarchal society. But even with becoming an adept warrior and a magic wielder, Kaike is still a woman and is still bound by the whims of men. Her father promised her that she could help choose her own husband, but he changes his mind and arranges a marriage without telling her. He is perfectly within his rights, as Raja and father. Kaike is once again reminded that she has no real power. It's a good match, to be sure. Her intended Dasharath is Raja of a powerful kingdom, but she would be his third and youngest wife. Before the marriage takes place, Kaike meets her intended and extracts a promise from him that any son she bears him will be the next Raja, no matter if the Raja's other wives eventually have children as well. And he agrees. Her father removed her choices, so she exerts what control she can over the situation. And we see her do this over and over, doing what she can within the bounds of what she has allowed, and each time going a little further, reaching a little higher. So she is married and moves to another country. And life in a new country as the third wife of the Raja 
as a queen, is difficult for Kai Kei at first. She's young and alone in a new place. The other queens seem to ignore or hate her. The only thing that draws her out is the chance to join Dasharath, her husband, on the battlefield. She has not forgotten her skills or her desire to prove herself in war. She is only meant to accompany her husband, but she finagles her way into being his charioteer. After all, she grew up in a country famous for its horses and learned charioteering from her brother. She panics on the battlefield, horrified at the reality of war, but she comes through and saves her husband's life. And at the end of it, she comes away horrified at war. And from this point on, she continues to do her martial training because she likes it, but she refuses to ever go back onto a battlefield. And I, I really liked that. It felt very natural for her. Kaike spends the rest of this book doing everything in her power to prevent war. She works to make her country safe and steady without having to fight. Later, characters will question whether she does this because she is a woman and afraid of war, but she sees it and knows it to be a strength. Saving Dasharath's life is the turning point for Kai Kei. Their already good relationship solidifies. Their connection in the binding plane is a bright gold thread. Her husband grants her two boons. She can ask him for anything. And boons are so important in this kind of story. Inevitably, the person who grants the boon regrets it. Anytime the gods in a Greek story promise anything to a mortal, they regret it. So, you know, keep an eye on boons or favors in stories. And I was thinking about it, like, what is up with that anyway? Is this like a cautionary tale about trusting people? Giving people too much power over you? I don't know. But in addition to the inevitable doom of the boons, Dasharath grants Kai Kei a seat on his council of advisors. And even better, on their return, she forms actual good relationships with her fellow queens. And soon, thanks to the favor of the gods, all of the queens have sons. And it was really nice to see Kai Kei become so close with her fellow queens and learn to rely on them. They all raise their sons together, treating each other's children as their own. Also, together the queens form a women's council to hear the problems of the women in their country, the people who cannot appeal to the Raja for help. Though she is finally blossoming in her new home, it's not all smooth sailing. Kaikei faces opposition from the sages, holy men who pass along the will and word of the gods. The sages consider it to be against the gods' will for women to do anything beyond the household, anything more than caring for their husband or children. Kaikei, who has, as previously mentioned, a pretty uh, contentious relationship with the gods, let's say, pays no attention to the sages and doesn't listen to their advice. But the sages are powerful men, and their influence continually sneaks into the palace, despite her best efforts. But Kaikei is achieving so much 
even with this opposition against her from the sages. But the book keeps reminding us that disaster is on the horizon. Kaikei is narrating from a point in the future after all of this has taken place. The disaster does take a really long time to hit us, though. It's probably in the last third or quarter of the book. Which, again, to be clear, I did not mind at all. I was having a really good time reading this one. So, as Kaikei's sons grow up, because she considers all of the Raja's children as her own, it becomes clear that there is something odd about Rama, the son of the oldest queen. He is a god, reborn, mortal and immortal, and he knows it, knows that there is something strange about him, which is one of the biggest deviations from the original tale. In the Ramayana, Rama only discovers his godhood very near the end of the story after he has already achieved great things. But here, Rama believes, encouraged by the sages, that his purpose is to wage war and that a woman's place is in the home. Two things that Kaikei has very strong opposing opinions about. Now, Kaikei loves Rama as her own son, and she does everything in her power to change his mind without using magic to influence him. She talks with him and argues with him and tries to convince him and brings her along and tries to teach him, but she's extremely busy also. And her connections, her ability in the binding plane to see and influence connections is nothing compared to the hold that Rama effortlessly asserts over everyone around him. Eventually, she must choose the safety of her kingdom from war or to use her boons to cast out her son and be considered a villain in this story to many, including her dearest family. She makes the choice. She calls on the boons her husband granted her for saving his life. She bids him to send Rama away to fulfill his promise and put her son on the throne rather than Rama, and she hopes that time away from the pressure of this great destiny and from the sages will allow Rama to become his own person. But she can't tell people that that's why she does it. She can't tell them that her son is a god, and so she is hated for it, rejected by her husband and her sons, even her fellow queens, Reduced in status, she who was once the Raja's most trusted advisor. But she stays true to her purpose. She did what she was fated to do, and what the gods knew she would do, and what they hated her for having to do. However, even after disaster, because I don't like books that just end on a major downer note, this book ends with hope, with the possibility of renewed connections given time. History and legend may remember Kaikei as the villain, but she knows the truth of the matter, and that is enough for her. Overall, I highly recommend this book. I had a great time. Uh, especially recommended if, like me, you spent a lot of your youth reading Tamora Pierce. 
This actually wins as the book I like the most from the Book of the Month Club so far. I would literally put it down so that it would last longer. There were a couple of things that felt rushed or jumped over at the end, but minor, minor complaints. This is a really solid book, and it's Patel's first book. I can't wait to see what else she decides to write. If you want more media like this, obviously I recommend Tamora Pierce. I'm trying to think of, like, a good standalone novel to recommend. It's not quite a standalone, but maybe The Hero and the Crown by Robin McKinley as well. That's it. Thank you for joining me. Join me next time to hear about Persuasion by Jane Austen, because I'm powering through a bunch of classics, apparently. If you've read this book or next episode's book, I'd love to hear from you. You can contact me at backlogbookspod at gmail.com. If you enjoyed this podcast and would like to support it, the best way to do that right now is to rate and review it or just share it with a friend. You can find the pod on Facebook at Backlog Books Podcast at backlogbooks.com or on YouTube. The music is by Joseph McDade. You can hear more of his work at josephmcdade.com. As always, thank you for spending this time with me. I hope to talk with you again soon.